Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great because I am just currently obsessed with this idea of plants and their mycorrhizal partnerships and how context-dependent those relationships can be. So I want to keep that conversation going, and to do that, we are talking today to Dr. Jason Hooksima, who studies a myriad ways of which plants and mycorrhizal fungi partner, and how complex and often context-dependent those relationships are. We, of course, talk about this concept of the wood wide web and the ways in which journalism has gotten ahead of the science, often in erroneous ways. But more than that, we talk about the ways that theory and practical applications of research can combine to do something really fascinating to teach us about a really complex world going on underneath our feet. Before I get to that, I just want to say this podcast cannot happen without support, and there's a lot of great ways to do that. But one of the best is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. For just a tiny financial contribution each month, you get a lot of great kickbacks, and best of all, you ensure this show has a future. I couldn't be doing this without my patrons, and I thank each and every one of them for kicking in a little bit of support each and every month. But that is entirely enough for me. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jason Hooksima. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jason Hooksima, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited to talk to you today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm a professor of biology at the University of Mississippi. Uh, my research focuses on a large part on the interactions between uh, plants and mycorrhizal fungi and their ecological consequences and their evolutionary dynamics and I've been working on a variety of questions in that realm uh, for uh, decades now, uh, especially focusing on forests and uh, trees, including pines and their mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, and uh, pines have a, a mycorrhizal fungi called ectomycorrhizal fungi, including a variety of really interesting mushrooms that are associated with them. And uh, my research has worked on, has, uh, has focused on uh, questions, including whether mycorrhizal network connections between trees are beneficial, um, but also looking at the coevolution between plants and their mycorrhizal fungi. Amazing stuff, and, and what a great system. But what brought you to this? I mean, were you a fungi kid growing up, or were you more of a plant person, or really just a nature nut that happened to stumble into a really cool system to study? Hmm. Uh, actually, I started out as a bird nerd. Uh, nice. I was really interested in birds, and that's how I got into biology. I was fascinated with birds and I wanted to become a bird biologist. And in doing that and preparing for that, I, I got through uh, coursework on birds in at the University of Michigan as an undergraduate. And I thought, all right, if I'm going to study birds, I really should probably study plants as well because they're the foundations of terrestrial ecosystems that birds depend on. Yes. And so I, I just started taking plant classes and doing research on plants. And Honestly, I, I got sucked in. I, I, I thought it was a sidetrack and it became my, my career. And, and, and in investigating, you know, what kinds of things should I work on in plant ecology, I really started to see how uh, the theories, the major theories of plant ecology were really lacking an understanding of, of mycorrhizal fungi and other organisms in the soil. And so 
I decided to really focus on questions of plant ecology. Also, there are some really interesting things evolutionarily where some of these fungi are really specific to pines and other conifers and they won't grow with other plants. And then others have evolved a much broader strategy where they will grow with hmm. a wider diversity of types of trees. And that intrigued me, that those that variability and those patterns intrigued me as well and raised a bunch of questions. And so that was how I kind of got drawn into it. Uh, I, was a, I was advised in particular to try working with rhizopogon, which is a oh. Uh, it's called, it's sometimes referred to as a false truffle because it's, it's a mushroom that grows below ground that, um, you know, it, it doesn't pop up above ground to spread its spores, but rather they have evolved to, uh, attract mammals who dig them up and eat them. Wow. And then the spores get dispersed, uh, through the, you know, essentially through the poop of the, <laughs> the small mammals as they're moving across the landscape. And, there are hundreds of species of fungi that have evolved that strategy, but um, you know, not all of them are famous edible <laughs> ones like the the white truffle and the black truffle of, of Europe. And um, but the so the the famous ones and the are ascomycetes. They're called true truffles, and some mycologists refer to the basidiomycete truffles as false truffles. Um, those are the kind I have worked on. They're not uh, poisonous, but um, mm. don't you don't generally want to eat them either as a human. <laughs> but they work, but they work really well in experiments. You can find them and pretty easily around pine trees. You can blend them with water and use the slurry to inoculate hundreds of, of seedlings and do experiments with them. And that really attracted me to working with those as well. Wow. That's very different. And yeah, I mean, as a, as a researcher, you want to get data. So going after things that are almost impossible to find or study, just, you know, it's a shame, but it doesn't make much sense from a career perspective. But it still sounds like you've picked up a, a fairly challenging group, or at least a, a, a mysterious group, if there's not something you can go out in the field and necessarily readily see by just looking at the base of a tree. I mean, obviously, you can go digging for it. But, you know, some of the methodolog some of the methodological issues that arise from this, everything you just described and more can kind of lend to some of the confusion that surrounds this, or at least how easy it is for things to kind of get ahead of themselves when it comes to the, this idea of exchanges happening between trees and fungi. And and do you think that's kind of clouded the water, the fact that this stuff up until extremely recently for some technologies just was very difficult to go about trying to investigate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are limitations. Uh, you know, working with trees, for example, as your study plants, as your study organism on the plant side, um, is inherently challenging because they grow fairly slowly. And so if you want to measure the benefits of some kind of interaction or some kind of mechanism in nature, the benefits for trees, um, you can measure growth over long periods of time, but you know you, you usually cannot estimate the lifetime fitness of, of a tree during the lifetime of an experiment. Um, trees live longer than... Hmm. Um, well, in a lot of cases, than scientists, and so <laughs> uh, you know, much less a, a single experiment. So what we're often do, uh, limited to is measuring the benefits of something for the growth of a pine seedling over the course of a year or two, or maybe the survival of those seedlings of trees mm. uh, during the course of an experiment. And growth and survival of young trees is important. Yeah, um, it is often an indicator of further success. You know, if you if a seedling doesn't survive, it has zero chance of 
becoming an adult and reproducing. So, right. you know, that that's meaningful, but I have to sometimes remind people of that because um, some ecologists and evolutionary biologists especially are used to uh, looking at results from experiments on uh, annual plants that, where you can measure their lifetime fitness in one year or even, you know, even better bacteria and nematodes, <laughs> right. uh, things like that, where you can do experiments with many generations within just a few months uh, in a laboratory. So, you know, I think it's worth it because we need to understand how trees and forests function, but we also have to recognize that there are limits to, you know, what we know about how ecological interactions affect the benefit, you know, affect the, uh, the success of trees because experiments are limited to, in most cases, measuring the benefits to seedlings. Certainly. Yeah. And, and I mean, my hat's off to those challenges and the people that try to conquer them. But even in the best laid and best planned sort of scenarios, you got to wait a long time for enough data to come in or be very lucky and stumble across old data that, you know, wasn't necessarily designed to be tested in this way, but still lets you have some of those insights or, you know, space for time kind of substitutions, those sorts of deals. So, you know, getting creative, I guess, is a big part of it in, in that world of science. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one way we're trying to do that is um, by looking at, uh, as you say, you know, um, some space for time substitutions. That's a, that's a really good idea. One, one analog to that is looking at um, demographic data from plants of different ages in the same stand. So we do have a long-term demographic study in pine forests in California where we have every individual marked and we can look at how baby trees and middle-aged trees and adult trees, you know, how they vary in their survival and their growth rates and their production of pine cones. And, and then ultimately we can accumulate enough data to understand, you know, if a, a, a baby tree survives for two years, you know, how much more likely does that make it mm. uh, to, to continue to become an adult eventually? And with those kinds of long-term data, we can start to make those connections. But absolutely, there are limitations. And in, the, in attempts to um, understand how mycorrhizal connections between trees uh, affect trees, <laughs> um, we have to remember that the experiments so far have always just been done on seedlings. And so um, we don't really know uh, how they affect adult trees. Wow. Um, there are, is one study that I'm aware of that has found uh, really intriguing correlations between adult tree growth and some properties of mycorrhizal networks on the roots. So that's one study and it's a, uh, it's correlative. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we have to, uh, be cautious about how much we read into it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I like it anytime someone kind of reiterates the caution of just, you know, be a little bit more conservative. It's it's easy to kind of reach and, and suggest things. It's a lot harder to kind of rein them in once they've gotten out there. And And I think, you know, like you said, the limitations aside, working with seedlings is fascinating because that's the first big bottleneck any or plant really not just trees has to go through so yeah if the tree seedlings have to can get through their first year or two that gives them a better shot or at least a chance of making it into the canopy more so than if they died but even among the the seedling work uh yours and others included there's no real clear pattern to the benefits of of 
the, the the common mycorrhizal network not having mycorrhizae that is pretty uh consistent or at least there's there's more evidence that's supporting the benefit of it but in terms of like the sharing the 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 adult trees caring for their seedlings that sort of stuff that that's more i guess journalistic fiction than fact uh, when you look across the literature in a nutshell yes and, <laughs> and that's an important point to emphasize for your listeners is that you know, the word the words mycorrhizal network get used in different ways. And in one sense, it refers to simply the presence of, of mycorrhizal fungi and the, the quote unquote network of mycelium that they have growing from the roots of plants out into the soil. And, and most plants have those fungi on their roots. And, and so the, most plants have those networks associated with them. Um, and, and indeed, you know, there are thousands of experiments that have been done testing whether the presence of those fungi affects uh, plants. And, and in a large majority of cases, plants benefit from those networks. And you know, we've, I've been involved in synthetic work to put together results from, from those thousands of experiments and um, to look at all the different factors that uh, play into how much does a plant benefit from mycorrhizal fungi. Um, but the recent uh, controversy is about rather mycorrhizal networks that are common or shared between plants. And we refer to those as common mycorrhizal networks. And that's when these fungi in the soil connect the roots of multiple plants. And the question is, does it benefit a plant to be connected to another plant through these fungal networks below ground, through mycorrhizal fungi um, that grow from one plant to another? And that is a much more difficult question to answer. There are many fewer experiments that have been done mm. to get at that. And, um, and yeah, the results, um, first of all, the experiments have caveats associated with them. And <laughs> in our, our recent analysis, um, we looked at, uh, you know, alternative explanations for the results of those experiments. And in every case, there are important alternative explanations besides just mycorrhizal connections that can help explain differences in the treatments that are seen in those experiments. And, and so those caveats are important to understand because they lend uncertainty to those results that are, um, that, that's important. Um, even if though, if you set aside those caveats, um, our synthesis is showing that the results are really variable. And instead of concluding from this body of work that trees benefit from being connected through mycorrhizal networks, really the conclusion that we're seeing is that the benefits of mycorrhizal network connections uh, are, again, setting aside the caveats that I, that I mentioned a minute ago, mm. are really variable, really context dependent. In some cases, uh, there, are, there are, seem to be benefits where it really helps a plant to be connected through these networks to another plant. Other cases, it's clear that it hurts the plant to be connected in that way hmm. and, and it's detrimental. And then in a lot of cases, it's neutral. There's no evidence. Uh, a lot of experiments show that, you know, don't show any benefit or detriment of being connected. There's, and in those cases, the, the plants, um, their growth and survival is really determined by a lot of other important factors like hmm. uh, moisture levels in the soil and, you know, distance from other plants and competition from roots of uh, adult trees is a big is a big factor. 
uh, site differences, just differences between a south facing slope and a north facing slope, differences in you know between a mature forest and a, and a young forest. Those things have huge effects hmm. on the outcomes of these experiments relative to mycorrhizal network connections in a lot of cases. So, and I'm in my lab, a student in my lab, uh, Ian Mounts, is working right now on a, on a very quantitative synthesis of this literature. And so pretty soon we'll be able to present um, uh, a formal meta-analysis of all the experiments that have been done to show this, this variability in outcomes uh, really explicitly. That is really exciting because, you know, a lit review is one thing. Having the meta-analysis to look at the, like, as much data as we can gather at this point in time really speaks volumes. And, and I kind of find that story to be more fascinating, right? That there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. It's not this simple solution. And nature is unbelievably complex. And, and I mean, anyone that works in ecology gets to know that sooner or later because the data are noisy. And you can't measure everything. That's one of the other things that gets at me is how even with the best study design, there are always going to be variables you didn't measure. And who's to say those other variables, whatever they are, aren't also factoring into this, at least the context dependency side of these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, I agree um, that that's actually a more interesting question is when might these mycorrhizal networks be beneficial when aren't they? When are they detrimental? Under what context? And this could really help uh, help us understand, for example, uh, when mycorrhizal networks might help to buffer, uh, you know, tree mortality against climate change. Mm. Is are they more beneficial under severe drought, or you know, in years after severe fires, or under other extreme environmental conditions? Um, that question. Uh, has been asked and tested in uh, a small handful of experiments, but uh, we really don't understand the answers yet. And I think that's really where the interesting results are going to come as we accumulate more experiments. Um, and and to me, that kind of context dependency, it it really is everywhere in ecology in in the in the, in the interesting questions in ecology, and that's it's going to be. The uh, a big part of the story with mycorrhizal networks as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, I get the sense sometimes that it's this is almost rooted rooted in a bigger problem of trying to communicate is this idea that you know maybe mutualisms it's always good and that it's always this idea of sharing. Even saying sharing gives this sort of altruistic bent to it, but mutualisms evolve through you know evolutionary processes, and an organism isn't going to give more than it's getting back. Uh, you know, maybe over the long term it might look that way at times, but you know, even the fact that we have forests, these towering giant organisms that build their, their bodies out of, you know, essentially useless support structures that don't do a lot of photosynthesis in most cases, you know, it just shows you that competition is a big role and that, you know, mutualisms can change depending on that context. I think that's interesting, too, is just like the idea that uh, what we think of is always a good thing. You mentioned that there were some instances where a mycorrhizal partner or being connected to the network is detrimental. And I'm just wondering if there's any sense of, you know, hints at what could be a detriment that we look at something as always, oh, it's beneficial, but and sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, absolutely. In general, mutualisms um, have been shown to be highly context dependent. So, you know, mutualism being a, a beneficial interaction between two species, um, the, uh, 
in in most cases that have been investigated, those mutualisms are on a knife edge between mutualism and parasitism, and they can shift back and forth on that continuum depending on environmental conditions. And the mycorrhizal mutualism has frequently been shown uh, to exhibit that that shifting property, mm. depending, for example, depending on nutrient availability in the soil. Um, if you alter phosphorus availability to plants in the soil uh, and, and increase it, um, that disincentivizes the participation in the, in the, um, in the symbiosis for the plant because plants find, have a lot easier time getting their own phosphorus out of the soil when there's a lot more there mm. and they don't need to pay that cost of interacting with uh, the fungus. Um, and in terms of mycorrhizal networks and the connections between plants, well, one of the strongest patterns that we've seen in these experiments is that um, competition uh, from the adult trees on the young trees is, is usually estimated to be pretty strong in these experiments. Um, so one, one experiment that I was involved in doing it was with Michael Booth um, in uh, Pinus radiata forest in California. We saw a, an apparent potential benefit of mycorrhizal network connections for pine seedlings. Um, and uh, but that the way we set up that experiment is the way that most of them have been set up. And and that is that it also allowed us to estimate um, potential effects of the roots of the adult trees, not just the neck, the mycorrhizal network uh, connections, but also the roots. And um, that experiment was set up to, uh, to be able to uh, look at both the positive and negative or negative effects of mycorrhizal networks and the positive and negative effects of roots and to look at the balance between those. And what we saw was that while there were apparent positive effects of mycorrhizal networks in that experiment, there were also negative effects of adult roots that overcame and were stronger than the mycorrhizal network effects uh, that we saw. And in fact, we have found in analyzing the literature that that is frequently the case. Oof. Yeah, I mean, there's, again, so much more going on than meets the eye. And those are those scenarios where, yeah, there might be a detectable difference, but if the negatives outweigh the, the the pros, then yeah, you've got a completely different story playing out there. And it's just fascinating to think of the, the, the myriad ways that this could play out in different scenarios. And when you're talking about this stuff, even from a theoretical perspective, you start to go, oh, now the human element is starting to enter into the picture. And we think of like climate change and habitat resilience, food security. I mean, there's some big implications for trying to understand when and where and why these things can be good, neutral, or negative. I mean, you mentioned phosphorus. We're dumping it on our crops all the time. Is that changing the way that these plants are interacting with the other biotic communities in the soil or around them? It's it's fascinating how many more questions come out of this, uh, you know, one form of inquiry uh, that may be unexpected. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and I, I realized I didn't finish answering your question about, you know, <laughs> what what might be the the mechanism underlying negative effects of mycorrhizal networks. Well, right. uh, it's, it's possible that these fungi, first of all, these, we have to recognize that these fungi are uh, organisms in and of themselves that have their <laughs> own, you know, their own fitness, their own uh, consequences of participating in these interactions. And so 
you know, they may be uh, doing things in their own self-interest that is best for them that is not necessarily best for the plants. And um, that may sometimes result in negative consequences for the plants under certain conditions. Um, you know, but even if we, you know, treat the fungi as passive conduits of, of resources between plants, which they, they likely are not, but if we do, uh, you know, they could be facilitating uh, resource competition between plants hmm. uh, sometimes. So it could be that there's a, a source sink dynamic that governs nutrient flow in these systems through mycorrhizal networks. And it could be that there are times when uh, adult trees are pulling nutrients or other resources like water through these fungal networks uh, in a way that hurts the younger trees. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, again, I can't wait for more work to be done in this context. The jury is not in yet. It's it's amazing. And yeah, I, I love that you bring that up, even though this is a plant-based podcast. One of the things that I always think is sadly missing from these more public side facing uh, uh, takes on this common mycorrhizal network or the wood wide web, as they call it oftentimes, is that fungal perspective that you know, you think about this as sort of like the fungus uh, is involved in sort of uh, the stock market. It's certain trees are doing well, others aren't. Which one am I benefiting the most from? Do I give, I'm anthropomorphizing, but you could see that when you factor in that, oh yes, like you said, these are other organisms involved in this with their own evolutionary consequences. Ooh, that gets even more complicated, but also more fascinating. Yeah, indeed. Um, and, you know, there's some really interesting work um coming out in the last decade, uh, even suggesting that, you know, it, it may be that there are times when we need to think about the fungi as competing with plants <laughs> for nutrients in the soil. Uh, so, you know, the classic view of the mycorrhizal symbiosis is that it's a trading relationship, that the fungi are so good at getting nutrients out of the soil that they have excess that they can give away to the plant. And plants are you know, have a unique ability of creating uh, carbohydrates out of air, right? They can right. take carbon dioxide and use photosynthesis to make carbon carbohydrates, and they have uh, excess of that, and they can then trade some of that to, to fungi. Well, you know, that makes sense probably under certain uh, conditions of availability of nutrients. But if you uh, look into soils that are even poorer than average, that have really low nutrient availability. Um, it may be that in, under those conditions, the fungi just don't have a lot extra to trade to plants. Um, and so, you know, it's in their interest to keep as, min, as much of those nutrients as possible and only give away enough uh, to, you know, to maintain the health of their plant partners and get sugars back from them and they, they get as much carbon as they can back from the plants and they give away as little nutrients as possible. And in that sense, these fungi are competing with plants for nutrients in the soil. And that may especially be true in really crappy soils. Um, wow. This is a, a result that we've seen in some greenhouse experiments that we've done, some, some um, growth chamber studies. Um, it's, a, it's a result that has been seen in, um, for example, in really poor soils in Australia where, um, you know, eucalyptus forests uh, predominate. There's uh, some climate uh, experiments being done 
uh, at the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment at Western Sydney University, where they've been they've been um, testing the effects of elevated carbon dioxide using a free free air enrichment, and for years and years, giving these trees extra carbon dioxide to see if they will uh, grow better under you know higher CO2 conditions, and this that does happen in in many ecosystems. Plants do respond positively to that enrichment, but they're not responding that way in that system, that eucalyptus mm-hmm. forest. Um, they're not doing better. That carbon is all going below ground, and and it's being respired by the by the microbes under underground, wow. probably in an attempt to just suck a little bit more nutrients out of that terrible soil that they're growing in. Um, the, the soil there is so low in phosphorus uh, that uh, it may be, uh, you know, on that extreme end where the microbes are really competing with the trees uh, for that uh, the little bit of soil nutrients that are available. Wow. Amazing. And then just to think of like, yeah, geographic perspectives on these sorts of interactions and how that changes due to the idiosyncrasies of, yeah, soils and moisture availability and climate patterns and how that all might change. <laughs> yep, Absolutely. Um, we we need a global perspective on these things for sure and that emphasizes again the context dependency you know how uh how will these uh mycorrhizal networks between trees uh how will they differ in their function depending on whether we're looking at a uh, a conifer forest in the pacific northwest which has been studied uh, you know uh, quite frequently um on these questions versus uh a eucalyptus forest in Australia where I don't believe any uh, experiment has been done to test the effects of mycorrhizal network connections between trees. Right. Uh, and it's a really different system, and we shouldn't assume that it works the same way everywhere. Right. Right. And and sadly, I think sometimes these conversations that get out to people that aren't necessarily in that realm of very specific kinds of science, um, you know, these things can affect policy. They can affect how we're managing ecosystems and how we might manage them moving into the future. And, you know, one area of research that's really fascinating that you're involved with this is, is this idea of like that global perspective. What happens when these relationships enter into new ecosystems, you know, moving trees from, say, uh, Northern Europe down to South America or North America down to South America, taking their partners with them and how how do these plant mycorrhizal interactions change in novel conditions or, or ecosystems they never evolved in? Yeah, it's a great question. And there, there are lots of opportunities for pursuing those questions. Uh, and I'm, I'm involved in some of that work. I was just in Australia, uh, in fact, a few weeks ago nice. um, with some colleagues, uh, Nicole Hinson from the University of Hawaii, Carla D'Antonio from UC Santa Barbara in California, Steve Brewer, a colleague here at the University of Mississippi, uh, and Rita Spilgalese from Duke. And we were collaborating with, uh, with uh, colleagues at the Hawkesbury Institute. And we had 12 American graduate students, several uh, Australian graduate students involved as well. And uh, we were really investigating a system where pines have been um, escaping from plantations in Australia there. And beginning to uh, establish themselves in those native eucalyptus forests. Uh, but the eucalyptus forests are resisting. Um, it's wow. not, the pines are not taking over, but they are becoming established. And it's this sort of new hybrid ecosystem hmm. with dominant eucalypts and dominant pines coexisting. And uh, we really want to understand, you know, how 
are these pines potentially and their uh, co-invading ectomycorrhizal fungi, how are those co-invaders altering the properties of that system, uh, nutrient cycling in the soil, and whether or not mycorrhizal networks between trees are involved uh, is a really cool question uh, that we would like to pursue in the future. Yeah, that's amazing to think about. And I mean, it's often unfortunate when this stuff happens, but you have to take advantage of the scenario that, you know, a lot of other factors came into creating, right? It's it's kind of a natural experiment set up for you. And it takes an army, as you just mentioned, you got a lot of collaborators out there trying to look at this stuff. But, you know, going back to sort of the interpretations of it, it kind of feels sometimes like a little bit of information can be more detrimental than no information at all. And I think about this idea of introducing mycorrhizal fungi, thinking it's always a good scenario. You go into a garden store or horticultural practices area right now, and there's mycorrhizal fungi being marketed that are kind of unilateral across the globe. It's one company, a couple of companies doing it. It's often the same species. And you got to ask, like, if there is sort of juries out, context dependency, can be good, can be bad, can be neutral. Are there consequences to us saying, oh, well, all mycorrhizae are good, therefore I'm going to introduce them everywhere? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. It's certainly something that we know fairly little about, uh, and it has to be, that question has to be raised. Um, like you said, mycorrhizal fungi are being shipped all over the world and introduced like crazy um, for horticulture and um, and uh, in the attempt to help plants grow better, but you know it's it's been demonstrated that those inocula uh, sometimes work well and sometimes they don't, and we really need to better understand you know the conditions under which they work. Um, you know mycorrhizal fungi are absolutely important for plant growth in many many cases, but those inoculum products are not necessarily giving what, you know, giving you the mycorrhizal fungi that are needed for a particular plant in a particular context. Um, it may matter, you know, whether those fungi came from the same native ecosystem that the plants did. Mm. Uh, we've seen some evidence for that in meta-analyses that we've done uh, before. And uh, it also, uh, as you mentioned, it could be that those fungi end up escaping and becoming problems. Uh, there are examples more and more being found of uh, non-native fungi that uh, can become uh, uh, problematic in a variety of ways. And, uh, you know, that's been less examined than invasive plants and invasive animals, but uh, it's, you know, more and more it's becoming clear we need to be paying attention to invasive fungi as well. Big time. Yeah. I mean, you think of blights and stuff like that, but I want to kind of go back to something you briefly mentioned there is this idea of, is it the right fungus? And, you know, that's the little bit I've looked into. It seems like it's a spectrum between generalists, you know, plants, both plants and mycorrhizal fungi that can make a lot of different partners and a lot of different relationships down to highly specialized relationships for a lot of plants where it's kind of a one-to-one -one almost. And so even being able to try to predict which plant, even if it's a plant we know a lot about, we might and very likely do not know a lot about what's going on with that plant under underground. Yeah, and can you uh, and can you cherry pick a few fungi that that can be bagged up and put into a, a mix, and and can you count on that plant benefiting from those fungi? Um, 
you know, even if you could identify which fungi are on the roots of that plant, um, you know, m most plants associate with uh, numerous different species of mycorrhizal fungi. Some of those are conducive to putting into a, a potting mix or an inoculum, and, and some of those aren't. And so, yeah, I think it's really worth pursuing and figuring out how to do it right. But, um, but it's not an easy task to figure out, you know, how to select certain fungi that can be transported and put on the roots of trees at a, at a relatively low cost uh, or other plants and, and have the plants actually benefit from that. It, it, it's um, it's going to be, I think, kind of the Wild West for a while until that gets figured out. And it's going to be a mix of, of uh, some people who, are, you know, are really trying to do it based on science and others who are, are selling snake oil and yeah. are not interested really in whether it works. They're just trying to, to sell some, some product. So uh, I really encourage consumers to, you know, try to ask, you know, what's the evidence right. uh, for this product? What evidence do we have that this works before you, you know, spend your money on it? Ask where it came from. Uh, what's the evidence that this works? What, and what is the evidence that it's not going to be a problem, uh, in fact? Dang. Yeah. I, having worked at a health food store, I could tell you there's a lot of industries that would collapse if we had people starting to ask questions as simple as, does this work? Yeah. <laughs> another, another topic there entirely. But, you know, to think about everything we just talked about, you know, this is what excites me is because you can't get away from the practicality of it and the theoretical side of it. And to think about the questions you were just raising there about the, these relationships, the specificity, is it working? Is it not? You know, you have to think about the evolutionary history here. And that's another really fun area is, you know, you're bringing evolutionary theory and, and these mutualisms and how they evolve over time into this practical sort of viewpoint of like, how does evolution, let alone context aside, really influence the outcomes of these interactions? Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I think there's a lot to be learned from evolutionary biology in from a practical perspective, and that you know, that that is a potential source of of benefits to humans that is not uh, tapped often enough. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, one area that uh, comes to mind is you know there's a big um, uh, industry in searching for natural products. You know, uh, chemicals that are Part of the secondary metabolism of organisms in nature, and those those chemicals may have benefits to humans as drugs, uh, especially. And it's been shown to be, you know, a, a beneficial to find some of those chemicals in nature. But the search for those is has been the history of it has been that uh, it's pretty haphazard, <laughs> kind of grind, grinding up whatever's nearby, sometimes without even knowing, you know, what it is. Right. And, um, I, I've seen some of my, my colleagues working on those things starting to use in recent years um, some information from evolutionary biology, looking at the close relatives, you know, look, looking at a phylogeny of the evolutionary relationships among fungi, for example, and those where looking at those where beneficial chemicals have been found and trying to use that to guide where to look next. And I, I think, uh, you know, that's just a simple example, but it can really be beneficial. Um, and in mycorrhizal biology, uh, host specificity is is a, a great example. Um, just keeping in mind that some of these fungi are really particular. You know, there are there are ectomycorrhizal fungi, uh, some of these false truffles that have evolved only to grow with Douglas fir, and they won't even grow with pines. Wow. Uh, but then, you know, there are others that seem to be compatible with almost every 
uh, type of tree in the world. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that, um, needs to be taken into account. I think in general, uh, what we need to do also going forward in, in, from a basic science perspective and from some of these practical questions is paying attention to the traits, uh, of mm. these microbes, you know, different microbial species, fungi, bacteria have traits, they have characteristics that, you know, you can't see them, uh, like, like measure their, you know, their length from their <laughs> snout to their vent, like you can on a, on a lizard or ru- measure the, you know, how fast they can run, but you they have traits that are just as important, like chemical traits, like the ability to produce certain enzymes. Mm. And those kinds of traits really should be guiding, you know, a lot of our, they should be the subject of a lot of our scientific questions. And also from a practical perspective, you know, asking, okay, what are the traits of these fungi that we're bagging up and sending around the world? Um, are they fast growing? Are they like, are they, do they tend to uh, get off of the plants that they're on and get onto other plants quickly, mm. or do they tend to stay where they are and not escape? And, you know, other traits related to that could be important as well. Yeah, very important questions. And and luckily, you know, where microbial biology has gotten with technology and, and really the, the price and affordability of it, it's the best time, you know, is today and the better time is tomorrow, right? And And we're finally at a point where this stuff is achievable by a lab that may not have multi-millions of dollars worth of funding. Um, you know, this could be a grad student project. It's, it's becoming ever increasingly better and easier and more powerful to, to investigate questions just like that. Yep. It's true. Um, I think that that first happened in molecular biology of, of, uh, these organisms in terms of being able to identify them more easily and to characterize, you know, who is there? And that's become really cheap and fairly easy to do is to to use DNA sequencing and now even uh, RNA sequencing and um, and characterizing all these molecules that are in the soil. We can easily make lists of all the different bacteria and fungi that are present. The real challenge now going forward is to characterize their function mm-hmm. and as you say, that is getting easier as well. There are techniques that are cheaper and cheaper for measuring the traits of these fungi. For example, the you know the activities of different enzymes and um, you know assaying that is is easier than it's ever been. Um, we did a, a study in in, uh, in Australia uh, in that forest that I mentioned, in fact, where we took soil samples and applied them to these uh, these plates that have you know thirty uh, you know, thirty one different uh, substrates that indicate enzyme, different enzyme activities. And you can just plate these soils across these 96 well plates and, and read them on a plate reader and boom, they give you an idea of the microbial community in that soil. What are their capabilities? What is their fingerprint in terms of, uh, being able to process different kinds of substrates in the soil? Um, and it's, it's pretty cheap to do that now. So, uh, you're right. And it's a, it's an exciting time. I think it's really the frontier of, you know, of, uh, of functional microbial ecology, figuring out what are all these microorganisms doing, not only who they are, but what are they doing right. in human bodies, in the soil, and uh, associated with organisms in all kinds of ways. Excellent. Oh, man, I can see why this, you know, th- this area of research and the kinds of questions you ask really have taken so much of your attention. I mean, this is an amazing world. It's a complex world. And, you know, just chipping off pieces here and there, it, it it tells a, a much more nuanced and much more exciting story than the, the easiest story to tell, right? It, it's 
showing just how immeasurably complex our world can be at times. And, and really, uh, you know, to me, it breeds a more, a bigger appreciation of these organisms doing the best they can to get their genes into the next generation. And that is a complex world to start getting into. So I could see why it's, it's really taken a hold of you. Yeah. Amen. Uh, (laughs) There's just a, an endless list of fascinating questions to pursue. And that's, that's what I love about it. Excellent. Well, that sounds like you found yourself uh, just a dream career. So if people want to keep their finger on the pulse of your work, learn more what's coming out of your lab and that of uh, the work of your collaborators, where do you recommend they go looking? Mm, well, good question. Uh, I am on Twitter at uh, J Hooks. That's J H and, and four O's K S. And uh, I do uh, try to keep up and, and post new papers that are coming out from my lab and those of our colleagues that I think are really fascinating. So I'd love uh, to have your listeners follow me there. That's probably the, um, the best place. My website also has a list of our current publications and some cases you can download the papers there. And um, uh, we have uh, also a list of media coverage for the recent work on mycorrhizal networks. And so you can go there to find uh, other sources to read about uh, what we've been talking about today. Excellent. And as always, I will save people the trouble by putting those links directly in the show notes. But Dr. Hooksema, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this subject today. And thank you for all of the effort you and your colleagues put in to to make our world more interesting to us. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is we have to appreciate the world to know how to protect it. And it's people like you that make that possible. So thank you so much. You bet. It was my pleasure. Of course. Well, in the meantime, hang in there, stay healthy and keep up the great work. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. Wasn't that an amazing conversation? It just goes to show you that I think a complex world is far more interesting than a simple one. And I think our stories of nature and its relationships needs to reflect that. Sometimes the simplest story, it may be easy to tell, but it isn't true. And why spread fiction if the truth is so much more interesting? I thank Dr. Hooksema for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, go check out the show notes for all of the relevant links so that you can take an even deeper dive into this subject matter than this conversation. All of that is over in the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, check out all the ways you can support the show. There's a lot of great ways to do it. All of them help. For instance, you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. And as I said at the top of the show, you can also become a patron and contribute a little financial support each and every month. Speaking of patrons, I have a big shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Thomas, who signed up at the producer credit level. So Thomas is doing everything they can to help support In Defense of Plants. And I can't thank you enough, Thomas. And of course, thank you to all of my patrons that kick in each and every month. You rock. But that is enough for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.